since uh, why I already uh, said the, the greeting in Chinese, I won't do it again. So uh, we'll just go to God in prayer then. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you indeed for celebration, for family, for relationships. But all the more, we thank you for the relationship we have with you, that we are part of the heavenly family. And we pray that today we may listen to your word and listen to you carefully. For the word truly strikes to the heart of our being and calls us to a great decision and a great repentance. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, a pastor, <coughs> my, my first pastor actually, once said that even dead dogs can swim with the current. Even dead dogs can swim with the current. And uh, it's such a vivid picture that it stuck with me all this time. And what he was trying to say was that uh, you can flow with the current of society, you can move along, and even dead dogs can flow with uh, the current. But as Christians, we are not to be like dead dogs and flow with the current, but we are to be different. We are to be different in our values, our thoughts, and our actions. And uh, today, I think, is a passage which really goes to the heart of this, about how as Christians, if you choose to want to follow Jesus, you cannot be like a dead dog and flow with the current of society, but you must be different in so many ways, counter-cultural and have opposite values. Because being a Christian is not going through life cruising uh, and doing what everybody else is doing. It is not a bed of roses. It is not letting go and just letting God, but it is demanding and it is difficult. And uh, today, many of the things that Jesus says truly strikes at the heart of uh, this easygoing Christian living and really tells us that that's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins, um, as we read in this story, uh, in on the Sabbath, so in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. It all seems very innocent. Jesus is invited probably to a luncheon, and uh, he's, he's like a, the guest of honor. But we know that something is not quite right, because it says there that he's being carefully watched. And this word here has a, is a negative word. It's, it's a word of negative overtones. It's, it's a word of bad intentions. And sure enough, even though Jesus is invited to this house to eat in the house of this prominent Pharisee, uh, they are setting him up for a trap. And that's why they're watching him carefully. Because in verse 2 it says, there, right in front of Jesus, was a man suffering from, uh, in, in, the, in some of the translations it says dropsy, but from some other translations it, it literally means abnormal swelling of his body. So what a coincidence that is, isn't it? Because here, Jesus, on the Sabbath, comes to this prominent and rich religious leader's house and these Pharisees are notorious for not mixing with the poor or the sick or the unclean but right in this house, in this banquet, is a sick man and this sick man happens to be sitting right in front of Jesus on a Sabbath day. So what is happening here? Well obviously the Pharisees were watching Jesus carefully because they wanted to trap him because we've been down this road before right? because the Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus because they felt that he didn't obey the Sabbath laws. So if you look up here, uh, up here on the slide, in Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 13, we already saw two of these instances. There may have been more which are not recorded for us. But Jesus healed this man who had, had, had a hand wasn't working, remember? And his hand was completely restored on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees were furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In Luke chapter 13, again, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and the, Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, 
So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do as he's being carefully washed? What does Jesus do when he knows that he's going to be tested? Uh, Does he, you know, out of politeness for his host, decide not to heal this man? Does he avoid the controversy? No, he heals this man. And uh, the lesson that uh, I think that we are meant to take from it is is especially found in verse 5. Because in verse 5 to 6, Jesus sets out the reason why he heals this man. So look at what it says there in verse 5. Then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now why is it they had nothing to say, even though they wanted to trap Jesus? Because Jesus was turning the issue from Sabbath to the issue of compassion. And what he was saying was that if it was your own son who fell into the well, would you not save him on a Sabbath day, even though that meant you working and breaking the Sabbath law? And the obvious answer is, yes. Again, if one of you had your own ox, and I guess ox would be very expensive in those days, it's like having your, your Lexus car or whatever, 90,000 CEO fall into the river, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you save it, even though it was a Sabbath day? And obviously the answer again is, yes. And what he was really saying to the crowd was, you would save your son, you would save your ox, because you would save what is precious to you. And Jesus was saying, look, this man is not precious to you, and therefore it doesn't matter whether I save him or not. But, if it was your own son sitting here across from, this, from me on this table, you would want me to save him. And that was the whole point of what Jesus was saying here, was that the Pharisees, they had love and care and compassion, but only for people and things which belonged to them. And Jesus said that he was completely opposite in his attitude, because he loved and cared and had compassion on people and things which were not his. And I think that's the first lesson for us today. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, uh, if we're not disciples of the Pharisees, but we're disciples of Jesus, then we must be like Jesus Christ. We must have compassion and care and love for things and people who are not like us, who are not our family, our friends, but people who may be complete strangers to us. So let me ask you a question this, uh, right from the very beginning, right? Do you have that attitude to strangers and people? Do you have care for the stranger? Do you have love for things which are not yours or things that are not close to you? Do you have compassion for someone who you do not know? Are you like the dead dog which is flowing with the tide of society and says, I only love my family, my friends, those who are close to me. Uh, my own personal possessions, but I have no care and compassion for things which are outside this circle. Because Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, then you must have compassion for the stranger, love and care for those who are outside your immediate circle. So are you a compassionate person, a truly compassionate person, not just loving people who are part of your inner circle? Jesus goes on in verse 7, And he instructs them in a different way. He says in verse 7, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, 
For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come, both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowliest place, the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now Jesus was speaking about uh, those, the banquets in those days, and it was very different from the banquets that we go to today. Uh, most times when we go to a, ba- a banquet, it's, it's a big wedding banquet. And uh, your seats are all reserved for you, right? I mean, you know a table number, you're supposed to sit in, and uh, basically you only choose from 10 seats. But in those days, you could choose from all the seats. And um, it was like free seating. Okay? And the Pharisees and the guests who had come to the Pharisees' dinner would naturally gravitate towards the best seats, the seats next to the VIP, the highest seats, the place of honour. Now the context is very important because when Jesus saw how the Pharisees and their guests were acting, it was not an isolated incident because this is how the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the powerful people of the day, that's how they acted all the time. So in verse chapter 11, right, verse 43, the next slide, uh, Jesus had already condemned the Pharisees by saying, Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So the Pharisees were always looking for the best seats, right? They were the good seat lookers, right? They always want to look for the best seats. And Jesus says that, you know, when you look for the best seats, there's always the risk because when you sit down and everybody starts coming, right? It's a bit like church, right? Okay, uh, you know, after a while, all, all the seats are taken, okay? And uh, what happens is, if you come and sit at a very high place and the host realizes that the guest of honor has come and there are no seats left up there, he will look at you and, and ask you to move back down to the lower seat because like, if you look here, all the seats are taken, you have to go to the back, right? So, it will be really embarrassing because you have to stand up in front of everybody and walk and make your way all the way down to the back. Now, what is Jesus' point here? I mean, uh, does he just talk about table etiquette, social etiquette? Is he just talking about good manners? Is he just saying, you know, let's pretend to be humble and sit right at the very back so that, you know, the, the, the host will ask you to come up and, uh, you know, you can pretend to be humble, but actually inside you're really glorifying, right? You know, look at me, you know. Hey, you know, the, the host asked me to come right up to the top. You know how important I am? So is he just saying, let's pretend to be humble and sit in the lowest seat and then the host asks us to come to the front. No, I don't think Jesus is talking about pretending and neither is he talking about just talking about dinners and banquets and where to sit, the seating arrangements. Because verse 11 explains the principle of what Jesus is talking about. And in verse 11, Jesus says, For, because, right? For, because all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what Jesus is actually talking about here is not just wedding banquets or normal banquets. He's actually talking in a much, much bigger picture. That if you lift yourself up and exalt yourself, you will be humble. 
And I think that what he's actually saying is, is not just humbled by the host at the banquet, but humbled by God himself. Because Jesus had already, you know, thought of this idea, but it's not a new idea of Jesus, but it was the idea that was brought out in Luke chapter 1 where God himself humbles those who are proud, sorry, humbles those who are proud and lifts up those who are humble. So in Luke chapter 1, which is up here, next slide, right? Remember this is what was, uh, was, was, was taught in verse, uh, chapter 1 of Luke. God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. So Jesus here is not applying the principle of where to sit when you go for a banquet. He is saying, don't be proud. Do not lift yourself up. For God will bring you low. God will humiliate you. God will shame you. Because God doesn't like the proud. He likes those who are humble. Now, are you a proud person? Uh, you know, think, think about it for a second. Are you, are you a proud person? I know it's hard to be proud when you're perfect in every way, right? <clears throat> but many of us in the world, that's the way the world thinks, and that's why it's countercultural, isn't it, what Jesus is saying? Many of us, when we think like the world, the world lifts itself up and exalts itself, doesn't it? When you meet people, don't you notice they're always telling you about themselves? how good they are, what they've done, what education they've received, uh, what they've achieved, who they know, uh, you know who they mix with, who, the, who their friends are, what information they have because some very prominent person told, you some, told them something. Right, that's the way of the world, isn't it? People want to lift themselves up. I remember when I was in, um, studying university in Australia, I, I lived in residential college. So, you know, usually at residential college, uh, you're supposed to put your name on the door. I, I don't even think I put my name on my door. I just was so disorganized, I never even got to doing that. But I remember this guy on another floor of mine, uh, he put his name on his door. But not only did he put his name on his door, he put there his education, his educational qualifications. So imagine, you know, this is your room, dorm door, and it's like, you know, Andrew Ong, you know. Diploma of this, Bachelor of this. And then after that, he put down Masters of whatever. But the only problem was he was only in the first week of his Masters course at university. But he already put down that he already received his Masters, right? But that's the way the world is, isn't it? Because the world exalts itself and wants to lift itself up. Now, the problem is, God says that if you exalt yourself and, and you're proud, well, God will humble you, God will bring you down. Now, I think this is one of the lessons that we don't hear enough when we come to church, when we come together for Bible study or big corporate setting. We think, okay, you know, we hear sermons about the danger of sex and adultery and sexual morality. We hear the dangers of greed and money. But I don't usually hear many sermons about being proud. <clears throat> and as a result, I think churches can be full of proud people who exalt and lift themselves up. I've been to uh, church meetings, uh, not, not here in our church, 
but in some other settings where people want to be called reverence. Why? Because they feel that they can have more honour and respect. I've been in meetings where people have requested to have special titles. So again, to have more honour. You hear some pastors preach and they're always dropping hints about, you know, oh, you know, all these things I've done and uh, the size of the churches I've led, I've led you know, all, and all these things that I've done. Oh, and if you go to their website, sometimes, you know, you look at, there's a huge section about, you know, all the educational things that they've done, all the wonderful things that they've done. But that's really dangerous, isn't it? Because we are not humble, not truly humble, not pretending to be humble, but not really humble. Then read verse 11 again, isn't it? Because the principle that Jesus says is for all, not just some, for all who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Are you a humble person or are you a proud person? On the last day, will God raise you up or will God bring you down? In verse 12, uh, Jesus goes on and again he addresses a different issue. He said to his host, he said, uh, I guess it's a <coughs> quite an offensive thing to the person who invited you for a dinner or lunch. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or your relatives. Okay, that makes sense, yeah? Or your rich neighbours. Okay, that's interesting. Rich neighbour, yeah, okay. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid for the, at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, isn't it interesting because we, there are actually two categories of people here, right? There's the, the first category of people that Jesus talks about, friends, brothers, sisters, relatives, these are your friends. And presumably because they're your friends, when you invite them, they will reciprocate and invite you back. But there's another group of people that you may invite, which are not your friends, but they're just, the thing that distinguishes them is that they are rich, your rich neighbours. Why do you invite the rich? Because, because they are rich, they will be able to pay you back because they, they have the means, the capacity to treat you again. Now, Jesus says instead in verse 13, when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Now all these four groups of people, they, they can't pay you back. They, they aren't able to pay you back. They have nothing to pay you back with. So when you treat them, you get nothing back. Jesus says that when you live in this world, we are not to be like the world where when we give something, we expect something back. That is the principle of reciprocity, right? I give, I get something back. But Jesus says be generous. Be generous. Real generosity is giving without expecting something back. And as a result, if you do that, if you're truly generous in God's eyes, you will be blessed. And instead of being repaid because they invite you back or give you a present or something else, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That means you will be in heaven. On that day, God will give you the good things. Now, I wonder whether you and I are truly generous. Are you a generous person? When you give, do you expect something in return? 
So let me ask you, when is the last time you've given something without expecting something in return? Just think about that for a second. When is the last time you gave something without expecting something in return? Now, um, at, at the, okay, I, I know at the church camp you all make fun of me making all these golf club illustrations. But I, this one works. So the golf club I play at, okay, around uh, Chinese New Year time, there's expectation that uh, all the staff members uh, will get an ang pao. Okay, so this time of the year, you get extra special attention. Everybody comes flocking to you because, you know, they want ang pao. Now, I know some people and they always make a big deal about how much they put in their ang pao. Because, I mean, obviously, if you want to give an ang pao to some person who's a staff member, usually you give like, you know, $4 or maybe a bit more. But some people will go out of their way to give a lot of money in their ang pao. Now, are they really generous people? Are they really generous because they put a lot of money in the ang pao and give it to the staff? Well, if I reflect on what Jesus is saying here, the answer is no. They are giving the ang pao not because of generosity, but because of reciprocity. They want something back. And what do they want back when they give this really big ang pao to the staff members? Well, I think one, is thing, one thing they want is they want to have the reputation for being really generous people. That's why they tell everybody how much they put into the ang paos. It's a bit like, you know, people giving lots of money to some institutions so they can put their name on the building. Right? That's, I'm giving something, what do I get in return? My name on the building. That is not real, I mean, it is generosity in one part, but you get something back, isn't it? What you get is the reputation that you gave a lot of money to this institution. But also, on top of that, why do I want to give a lot of money in the ang pao? so that I can have better service. Because, you know, if I give you three times as much as what everybody else is giving the ang pao more, then, I, then in future, you better treat me well, right? Because, you know, don't forget, I'm the one who gave you so much money, your ang pao. Everybody else gave you, like, what? Four dollars? I gave you like, so much, you know, you better give me better treatment, right? You see my car coming, right? You see me sitting down, you better make sure you treat me first before everybody else. So that's not real generosity, that's reciprocity, isn't it? I gave the money, but I expect something back. So let me ask you, are you a generous person in God's eyes? Do you give without expecting something in return? When is the last time you gave something and expected nothing? Um, because Jesus says that you know, this, this is the principle that we should live by if we are Christians. And our whole church should be filled with generous people. Because we are all following Jesus and not flowing like dead dogs with society. So I remember in my own life as a Christian, people have been generous to me without expecting people anything back. I remember my last year of theological college, I, had, I finished my exams, I was hanging around for a while with my family, I had no car, I sold everything already. And this stranger in the church offered me his son's car because his son had gone somewhere to work and the car was just sitting there. So for two weeks, I took this car with my family. We drove around all parts of Australia. Then we brought it back and gave it back to him. And this person was a complete stranger. I, I don't know uh, the family's name, the husband and wife. I don't know. I never saw them again. 
They just happened to hear about it and they gave me their son's car. Now, I want you to think for a second, if you had a car, would you lend that car to a complete stranger, even though they were theological college, and let them drive around the whole of Malaysia for two weeks and then come back and never see them again? Because that's what it was, isn't it? They lend the car, expecting nothing back. Except maybe a few dents or something, right? I mean, but here was somebody who was really generous. So are you generous in that way? Is, are you generous like what Jesus says? When you give, you give, but you cannot expect to be paid back. Because if you are not generous, you have lots of things here, you have lots of possessions, but you will not be blessed by God and you will not be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus then goes on in verse 15, and um, one of the people at the table heard all these things that God was talking about, uh, sorry, that Jesus was talking about, and he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now why did this man say this? Well, obviously, this man sitting there was probably most likely a Pharisee, or you know, someone associated with the Pharisees. And in his mind, he was thinking that Jesus was talking about himself. He was listening to all these things that Jesus was saying. He knew that Jesus was talking about heaven and the resurrection of the righteous. And he was probably thinking, Jesus is talking about me. Right? I'm the one that is going to be there after all. I'm a Pharisee. I'm pretty generous. I've done all these things. But Jesus soon sets him straight, isn't it? Because this man hadn't been listening to what Jesus said and he wouldn't be in the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this parable, which is a really provocative parable, to get this man and the people on the table thinking. So he says in verse 16, right? Uh, Jesus just doesn't say to him, you know, you ninkampu, you're not listening properly, right? He says in verse 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests, and at that time he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So this certain man, obviously the context is heaven, right? Because this is what this uh, Pharisee is thinking about. Blessed is the, is the one who eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. So this certain man must be God, right? And he's preparing this great banquet in heaven where he's inviting people. And obviously the Pharisee who's listening is thinking, Okay, the servant has come, he's asking all the people to come, to this great, great, great banquet, and he would expect that the people would say, yes, let's come, and how great this you know, great banquet would be, how blessed it would be. But what a surprise, because in verse 18, instead of saying yes, they all alike began to make excuses. So the Pharisee who probably said this thing is probably thinking, that's really weird, isn't it? Because I should... I should be in heaven. Why aren't the people all saying yes, 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 you know? Why aren't they all coming into the banquet? But instead they make excuses. And what sort of excuses do they make? Well, I just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Now, you know, uh, excuses... Uh, are different from reasons, right? Okay, if I give you an excuse, it means that it is not believable or genuine. A reason means that you, you know, I, 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 I got knocked down by a car, so I really can't come, right? But excuse is like, uh, I didn't do my homework because, you know, the dog ate my 
homework, and all that sort of thing, right? That's an excuse. And so the excuses that uh, are suggested here, you know, first servant, uh, the first person, second person, third person, they are all lame excuses. They are already insulting excuses. So the first person says, oh, you know, I can't come because I just bought a field, so I must go and see it. Now that's a really lame excuse, right? It's like saying, I just bought a flat, and now I must go to the show flat to see it. I mean, how weird is that? I mean, you see the flat before, you see your show flat, and then you buy your flat, right? You don't go to see the show flat after you buy the flat. But this is what this man says, I bought the land, now I must go and see it. The second man says, I bought some oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Again, it's like saying, you know, I just bought my Toyota uh, Vios, and now I'm going to test drive it. No, usually you test drive your car, and then you buy your car, isn't it? You don't do it the other way around. And this, the third man says, oh, you know, I just got married. But then, marriage doesn't stop him from coming to the great banquet. I mean, in the Old Testament, married people were exempt from war, but not coming to a banquet. So these are not reasons. These are excuses. And they're lame excuses. So who was Jesus referring to? The first person, the second person, the third person. He was referring to the Pharisees. They had been invited to come to the heavenly banquet, but they were making excuses. And what excuses were they making? They they were making excuses because they didn't want to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus was God's Son, the Lord and Savior. He came to bring them to the heavenly banquet, but they were making excuses. They were making excuses like, oh, you know, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. They were making excuses like, oh, you know, Jesus mixes with tax collectors and sinners. They were making excuses just like at this very, very banquet when they said, oh, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And therefore, these are not real reasons These are excuses, lame excuses, and they were not coming into the kingdom of God. So what does God do? Does God postpone or withdraw the meal? No, because it says there that God then asked the servant to go out, and who did they invite? They invited the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. These are the very people who would not be invited to come into this meal at the prominent Pharisee's house. Apart from the man with the swollen, abnormal swelling on his body, you wouldn't see the poor, the lame, or the blind, or the crippled. But God says these people who would not be invited into the Pharisee's house, they would be invited to heaven and they would be saved. And even more, God says, invite those who are outside the city, those who are far away. Even people like the Chinese, and the Indians and the Gentiles, these people will all be invited into the heavenly banquet. So when you bring this parable to ourselves today, have you entered into, have you received the invitation and have you responded to the invitation to go to heaven? Have you received the invitation of Jesus and said, yes, I'm coming to the great heavenly banquet? Or are you making excuses? Are you making excuses? There are no reasons, there are only excuses. Like one commentator said, man cannot save himself, but man can damn himself. Damn is a swear word, right? Okay, but anyway, 
Man cannot save himself, but man can damn himself. We cannot save ourselves because only the blood of Jesus on the cross can save us. But we can damn ourselves because we do not accept God's invitation of Jesus bringing us to heaven. So are you making excuses for not accepting God's invitation to go to heaven? I know this other guy, he's a very rich, retired person. He spends his whole life traveling the world. Right? Half his life is spent traveling to Russia, to England, to you know, South America, wherever. Okay? He's gone to many, many places. So only one day he's telling me about how he's watching this discovery uh, program about how the Bible is not really true. Okay? So anyway, I had this discussion with him and again, oh, you sort of, I try to explain a lot of things to him. And I said, look, why don't I let you read this book called The, Cra- the Case for Christ, which will answer all your questions and you will see that really you can trust the Bible and you can be saved. And his answer to me was, I'm very sorry. I can't read it. I'm very busy. Now here's a man who is retired and spends his whole life traveling and you can spend time watching the Discovery Station but you can't spend time reading this book. You're very busy. What a lame excuse. And Jesus says, look, it's so sad, isn't it? Because you have the great opportunity. Jesus has died for you and you have the invitation to go to the heavenly banquet but you are very busy. What a lame excuse. And as a result, this person, if he doesn't change his mind, will never enter into heaven. Jesus goes on in verse 25. There's a large crowd who obviously there, maybe Jesus walks out of the lunch. And they were traveling with Jesus and Jesus turns to them and in verse 26 he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, I think that this, uh, this really heavy instruction by Jesus is linked in, in the same theme as the parable of the great banquet. Right? Because these people, the Pharisees, were making excuses Making excuses because they didn't want to enter to heaven. They were making excuses because following Jesus was not a priority. Following Jesus was what not really important to them. They didn't want to make a commitment in following Jesus. So Jesus says, do not make excuses, right? Don't make excuses in not following me. But how much do you need to follow Jesus? You can say, yeah, I won't make excuses and I'll follow Jesus. But how much of a commitment is there in following Jesus? What is required in following Jesus? You can say, yeah, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. I won't make excuses. But how much of a priority do you need to make to actually be a follower of Jesus? And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must hate your family and you must hate your own life. Now what he's saying is, not that you literally hate your father and mother, especially not Chinese New Year, Because other parts of the Bible says that we must love our parents and obey our parents. What he's saying is, your priority in following Jesus and your commitment in following Jesus, your loyalty to Jesus must be so high and so important to you that by comparison, any other loyalty is just not even there. 
You love Jesus so much that it seems as if you can even hate your parents. You love Jesus so much that even your own life is not important to you. See, that is what is required if you want to follow Jesus. There must be nothing else. There must be no other loyalties. There must be total commitment to Jesus. So this pastor, Dudley Ford, once said this. I remember this. He said, Entry into the kingdom of heaven is free. Entry into the kingdom of heaven is free. Right? The entrance fee is free, absolutely free, all paid by Jesus. But the daily subscription is everything you have. The daily subscription is everything you have. And that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? You want to follow me, you must hate your, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. That is how committed you must be to following Jesus Christ. Nothing less will do. And he goes on to say, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And he's saying the same thing, isn't it? Because in those days, the only people you see carrying their cross are people who are on a painful journey to die a terrible death on the cross. So in the olden days, they didn't carry the whole tea bar, right? They just carry the, the top bar. Okay? When you carry a cross, you just carry the horizontal beam. And once you, start, once you see someone carrying the horizontal beam, they're usually surrounded by soldiers being taken up to the execution ground. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you are like that man. You are like that woman or whoever that is going to be led up to the execution ground. That means that you are a dead man walking. You, are, you have a person who has given up your life already. When you want to follow Jesus, you are basically saying that I will die for Jesus. I've given up everything for Jesus. And isn't that what Jesus says later on? He says, uh, in the same way, verse 33, in the same way, you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. So that is the cost of following Jesus. Now how different it is from the gospel that is preached in many churches today, especially the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel says when you follow Jesus, it's all about blessings and blessings and even more blessings on top of that. And I remember hearing of a pastor from a church saying, we don't want to tell anything to new Christians that will upset them. Right? We don't want to tell anything to new Christians that will upset them. Well, unfortunately, what Jesus says here is exceedingly upsetting, right? Because he's saying, if you want to follow me, hate even your own life and give up everything. Jesus says to be my disciple is not about blessings, but it's about suffering, right? Carrying your own cross. It's not about getting and receiving blessings, but it's about giving. Giving away your very life. It's not about living a life free from worries, where you move from one level of blessing to another, but actually receiving more pain and suffering than ever if you want to live for Jesus. I heard of a person who accepted Jesus Christ and said, I've decided to become a Christian because I want to be blessed, but I don't want to change a single thing in my, in my life. Now this cannot be a disciple of Jesus. You cannot want to be a, a follower of Jesus and not want to change your life because your whole life now belongs to Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus says, in verse 28 to 35, to think very carefully, right? He says in verse 28, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower... Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if we lay the foundation, if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees will 
ridicule you, saying this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able of 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Now, both of these parables uh, expect a yes for an answer, right? So when you build a tower, a t- not tower, a tower, right? Won't you first calculate whether you have enough money to, to, to finish the construction? And of course, the answer expect, expected is yes. If you go to war against an army, which is two times your size, would you not first calculate you know, whether you have enough advanced armor and you know, uh, arrows or what else, nuclear weapons, so that you can win? And the answer again is yes. And both times the answer is yes, is because you need to count the cost at the beginning to make sure that you can complete the task. I need to calculate now how much money I have so that I can figure out where I can finish the tower. I need to calculate now so I can figure out whether I can win the war at the very end. So both the parables are parables of completion. It's not how you begin, Jesus says, but how you end. Count the cost now because what is important is will you finish what you have set out to do. And that's why you need to count the cost. Because if you are not willing to give up everything for Jesus, then you will not complete, you will not finish, you will not end. You will give up. Because Jesus says that you need to count before you begin. You see, becoming a Christian is not like being wishy-washy, and you know, being undecided, and you know, like having a probation period, or you know, having a cooling off period. Uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Jesus says you need to count the cost at the beginning. And you need to ask yourself, can I commit so that I will last to the very end of my days and still be a Christian? Will I still be a follower at the very end? Jesus warns us right at the very end, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, do we have ears to hear what Jesus is saying? You cannot be a saltless Christian. Now, salt in the ancient world had uh, many wonderful uses. It was a preservative for food. It was seasoning for food. But also... Um, if you couldn't use it for preservative or seasoning, you could use it for fertilizer. Apparently, you could, you know, I don't know what you do, you spread it onto the soil. But also, you could mix it with uh, cow dung and uh, set fire to it so that you, you could cook your food, I suppose. Now, in the ancient world, um, salt uh, was not made by uh, uh, factories, okay? not, not, not some chemical process, but they would actually go around the ocean, the sea, and then the, or, I think apparently there are these uh, pools of water which the sun will hit and then the water all evaporate and then the salt left in it, so then you collect the salt. But salt could lose its, its uh, saltiness because if there was mixed with like impurities like you know, sand or some other mineral or something, then you, it wouldn't be salty anymore. Or if that salt, after you collected it, then got wet, then it would lose its saltiness. And you couldn't even use it for seasoning, you couldn't use it for preservative, 
even the secondary uses like the soil for fertilizer or manure, it couldn't be used anymore. It was worthless. It, it was just couldn't do anything anymore. And you threw it out. And that is the picture of the person that doesn't count the cost. If you want to follow Jesus and you say, well, you know, I'm going to be half-hearted, and I'm not going to give all of myself, then Jesus says, you are a saltless Christian, you are worthless, and at the end of the day, you'll be thrown out. You will not make it to the kingdom of God, you will not make it to the heavenly banquet. So are you a salty Christian or are you a saltless Christian? Have you chosen to give up everything for Jesus? Do you hate your father, your mother, your spouse, your child, even your own life to follow Jesus? Will you carry your cross for Jesus? There is no other way to enter into the heavenly banquet. Okay, I'm going to tell you a joke. I don't usually tell jokes because I'm probably not very good at telling it. But anyway, this pastor was telling this joke once before and he said, you know, there's a chicken and a pig and they were walking together. Okay, so think of it, chicken and a pig. They're walking together. Okay, just as a... They're walking together and they're both really hungry. The chicken and the pig. And they're looking for a spot of breakfast. So then they walk along. Then they come to a cafe. So they said, uh, okay, let's go and see what's happening. You know, let's go and see what's happening. Uh, no, let's see whether we can have some breakfast in this cafe. So they come there and then at the front of the cafe, there is the, the menu board. And then it says in the menu board, breakfast special. Eggs and bacon. Okay. So then the, the chicken says, let's go in. And the pig says, no, I can't go in. And then no, the chicken says, no, no, I'm really hungry. We should go in and have breakfast. So the pig then says to the chicken, for you, the eggs are an optional extra. But for me, the bacon is everything I have. And I think, that corny as it may be, that's, that's what it means, isn't it, to follow Jesus? Is that we are not to give our optional extras in following Jesus, right? We're not supposed to just give, you know, our the extra parts of our life, you know, the free Sundays, the time, some time that we have, uh, you know, read the Bible once in a while, you know, give our leftover stuff, our leftover energies, our leftover thoughts to Jesus. Jesus is not interested in our optional extras. Jesus says, if you want to follow Him. And it's very clear in this passage. You want to be a disciple. You want to accept God's invitation to go to the, the great banquet. Then it means everything, isn't it? It means everything you have. Your very life. Your, all the relationships you have. Jesus must be your one and only loyalty and commitment in life. It means that you must be compassionate to those who are strangers. It means that you must be generous to those who you don't get anything back. It means you must be humble. It means that everything in your life must be shaped and conditioned because you are totally committed to Jesus Christ. Now, it sounds really tough, but isn't it wonderful? Because you will be blessed. Because you'll be repaid the resurrection of the righteous. Because you will get to heaven. And all these things, all the struggles and all the hardships that you face because of your Christian walk, they will be worth it in the end. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to already examine our hearts for those of us here 
who have not accepted Jesus, we pray that you will help us to stop making excuses. There are so many excuses that we can give, dear Father, but they are not real reasons. In the end, they are no better than just rejecting you. We pray that you will help every person here to be saved and to be following Jesus. We pray that for all of us, that we will see the commitment required in being a disciple of Jesus and following Him. That it is not blessings and a bit of roses, but rather that we carry our cross and follow Him. That we will hate even our own life. That our every commitment, every loyalty, every love will be focused on Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.